Good evening, everybody, and welcome to another Books online event. My name is James. I'm the events manager at Books, And as always, it's a pleasure to be here on behalf of the shop, but also on behalf of Black Ink Publishing. Before we begin the proceedings this evening, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge and pay my respects to the traditional custodians of the lands upon which we all live and work. For me in Sydney, it's the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'd like to pay my respects to their elders past and present. It's upon their ancestral lands that Glee Books is built. It's upon their ancestral lands that uh, the apartment that I'm speaking to you from is built. Uh, and I think it's important that when we, uh, when we talk about these big issues, when we talk about recovery and we talk about um, you know, how to reconnect, we consider how often Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are left out of that national conversation and to make sure that we are uh, truly trying to recover and reconnect in an inclusive way. Now, it's my absolute pleasure to introduce you all, Andrew Weir. Uh, Andrew is a senior Australian public servant with degrees in politics, law, economics, and public policy. He's a graduate of the Senior Executive Fellows Program at Harvard Kennedy School, and he's also a director of ARDOC Limited, a children's education charity, and his books include Solved and Recovery. Um, we've uh, had uh, Andrew in the shop before. Uh, we're really thrilled to have him back in this virtual space, but um, yeah, are also a little sad that we weren't able to uh, do this in person. He's going to be in conversation with another uh, Glee Books events alum, uh, Andrew Lee. Uh, Andrew Lee, I'm sure you'll all recognise is the federal member for Fenner. Uh, before being elected in 2010, he was a professor of economics at the Australian National University. Uh, and his books include Battlers and Billionaires, The Luck of Politics, Random Easters, and Reconnected. Uh, I'm really, uh, really thrilled to have you both here this evening. So please, uh, Andrews, take it away. Well, thanks so much, uh, James. Thank you for, for having us. And uh, uh, would that we could be joining together uh, in, in person because that uh, wonderful event space you have in Glee, uh, Glee Books really is a, a great uh, cauldron for ideas. Uh, can I acknowledge the Indigenous people on whose lands I'm coming to you from today? Daaranuna, uh, Daaranunawal, Yongu, Nalamanyan, Dunimanyan, Nanawalwari, Daarawari, Dindi, Wangaralinjinyan and acknowledge any Indigenous participants we have today. Uh, this is uh, a two Andrews event, which you can think of as being like the two Ronnies, but for public policy nerds. Uh, and uh, it's going to be somewhat more unequal than it was advertised because Andrew Weir's book, Recovery is the, the new book. My, my book, Reconnected, came out last year. Uh, so as uh, so I'm going to, uh, to focus most of our conversation tonight uh, on the fresh findings from what I think is a, a really remarkable contribution from Andrew, looking at a series of crises and what we can learn from past crises. Uh, so, uh, so Andrew, to kick us off, I wonder if you might take us all the way back to the 1920s uh, and to what happened in the wake of those two terrible tragedies, World War I and the Spanish influenza. Yeah, g'day, g'day, Andrew, and g'day, everyone. Thanks for coming this evening. Um, yeah, you think think back to 1919, um, Spanish flu. Uh, you've just been through World War One, come out the other side. Um, incredible, 50 million people or so around the world have died from Spanish flu. Um, you know, it's what an incredible, incredible time that everyone's been through. But yet that moment. Um, 
it eventually, after a year or two of a recession, it eventually precipitated a, um, a boom time, at least in some countries in the United States. So we saw the, the roaring 20s um, when uh, the economy took off and, uh, and went gangbusters, when uh, uh, social transformation um, yeah, really changed the way uh, the world operated, gender relations, uh, uh, all sorts of things um, about the way the world changed. And I think... Um, Can I just interrupt you on that yeah, gender relations yeah, point? Sure. You have this, you make this remarkable point, which I'd never seen anyone argue before, which is that uh, the 1918 influenza pandemic uh, helped to accelerate the pace of women's suffrage. Tell us about that. Yeah, um, and if I remember, remember this correctly, but I think obviously the, um, the pandemic uh, impacted... Strangely, it impacted men more than it impacted women in the, the Spanish flu. So um, there were a lot of uh, a lot of uh, people who families that had been massively disrupted, and women's role in society was changed as a result of that. Um, and um, can you remind me of that suffrage argument, James, <laughs> Andrew? Because I'm I, that is a minor one in there, and I haven't quite got it to it. Got me to it. Yeah. Sorry. That's. I have not got that one to hand, Andrew, and you're on mute. Sorry. I'm so sorry, Andrew. Um, okay. Rookie error. You say on page 35, the yeah. flu helped elevate women socially and financially, giving them a greater voice in public affairs. Uh, the 19th Amendment was ratified in 1920, finally granting American women the right, the right to vote. Yeah. Uh, so it's, that, uh, it, it's, it's a fascinating argument, I guess, particularly about the, the effect on the United States. Yeah, it, that's right. And I think the um, the suffrage argument would been had been a long-standing one in the United States, but it was that social change that the the the, the flu and the and the pandemic brought about that that really accelerated a lot of that social change. And and we saw that subsequently, obviously through the um, through the 1930s and recovery from um, from the Great Depression as well. And um, and all recoveries that I've looked at involve both an economic dimension, but also a social dimension. They change, they fundamentally change the way our society operates in terms of power dynamics between different groups um, and, and, and relations between people. And you've, you then go on to talk about uh, the Great Depression, and we associate the Great Depression very much with the, uh, the, the New Deal. Give us a sense of the philosophy behind the New Deal, that notion of bold, persistent experimentation. Yeah, I, I think the New Deal is really interesting because you, we, you've got um, President Roosevelt came to power in the midst of the Great, Great Depression and clearly there's some obvious economic things that need to be done. We need to, he needed to sort out the, finance, the, the banking crisis and sort out the, uh, the gold standard um, that was really holding back, um, holding back recovery. But interestingly, there were some... some some things that are non-economic in a way that actually drove the drove that um, that recovery process. In fact, one study I looked at, Andrew, indicated that it was um, that it was increasing confidence amongst um, amongst Americans. Part, you know, uh, that contributed to three quarters of the three quarters of that economic growth, and that confidence was to a large part. Uh, inspired by the narrative that came through President Roosevelt talking a story about the um, what America could become and the the big vision for for the future of the nation, and I think the other thing that's really important through that um, the New Deal transformation is 
we have got we've got this notion in our minds of it being a big uh package or a master plan that was sort of uh locked in stone and to some extent some of those key elements were were enacted in the first hundred days of the presidency, but the but the New Deal was as much an approach as it was a package of initiatives. Roosevelt had assembled a um, a group of experts of uh, law, legal and economic scholars and others to advise him, but there was also a process of involving community members and unions and others in decision making, and listening to a whole range of voices and trying lots of things, many, many things. And a lot of those failed, in which case they were stopped. Those that didn't fail were, were built upon and expanded. And it was that iterative, experimental, creative approach that was actually at the heart of that New Deal approach, just as much as it, as it was, um, you know, the big, bold infrastructure play that we so often think about. Yeah, I've uh, just been listening to uh, an audiobook version of... Uh, um... Uh, Robert Caro's Master of the Senate, the, uh, the, uh, one of the volumes of the Lyndon Johnson biography. And I'm really struck by his analysis, suggesting that actually most of what Roosevelt got done was in the early 30s, and that uh, after he attempted to pack the Supreme Court, uh, that contributed to him losing the confidence of the Senate. And then he couldn't get very much through. So mm. it was this, you know, what we think of as a decade-long long process really was just a number of years and, and just points to, I guess, your point about the importance of grabbing the moment and, and that sense of confidence. Yeah. And I think that it might have only been a few years, but I think it's important also to think about the, the legacy that, that those few years left behind in the United States. Um, and the US is still feeling the legacy of the New Deal today. I mean, everything from the changed relationship that the American citizens have with, the, with their government in terms of um, welfare provisions, for example. I mean, the US is hardly a, uh, you know, hardly a socialist nirvana, but, it, but in terms of um, its relationship, um, there is at least an expectation of um, age pensions, disability pensions, and all of the, there is the, as the, you know, the government as a, as a fallback option that changed during new deal, the government's um, things like labor protections, child, well, child labor, maximum working hours, minimum wages, all those things were introduced. Um, they're still persistent today. And I think the development um, of, of the American South in particular, particular, the big infrastructure projects, the, um, the, the Tennessee River Valley project, the, uh, the Hoover Dam, the sewerage projects in Atlanta, all the things that roads, electrification of rural areas, all those sort of things that enabled the development of the South, which elevated um, much of the country, enabled the massive growth in the Sun Belt, the sort of suburban car-oriented development that we've seen in the south of the US today. That was all made possible by the New Deal. And it just had it echoes decades and decades and decades subsequent to them. You also talk about uh, natural disasters, and in particular, the uh, Christchurch earthquake. Um, to talk to me or talk us through some of the ways in which Christchurch uh, sought to rebuild. And, and I'm particularly interested in your emphasis on the role of arts and culture and that rebuilding. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, I mean, Christchurch uh, is one that's very familiar to a lot of Australians. It wasn't very, very long ago, 2010. Um, we've all, many of us have know people from, from New Zealand and we'll know that the central business district area in Christchurch was basically flattened or had to be flattened after the after the earthquakes because of uh, because of the 
the structural instability in in the buildings and and there were throughout the city there were just vacant spaces left everywhere where where there were empty blocks um and the a really flourishing and creative uh creative community driven movement arose in Christchurch whereby they would think about creative ways of activating those vacant spaces um might have one, uh, one example for example they put on a a pedal powered cinema where people had to ride ride bikes to power to power the the projector and they watched bicycle themed movies and another time another another example was where they um put in a um a coin operated uh jukebox and a dance floor just in a space and people started dancing in the middle of the public arena public space and it really transformed the way Christchurch thought of itself and Lonely Planet rated it one of the the 10 most um the 10 best cities in the world a couple of years later just due to that creative energy that that arose and I think the parallels today are quite amazing in a city like cities like uh Melbourne and I presume Sydney also um they're increasingly we might not have vacant blocks in the same way that uh, Christchurch did, but we are increasingly seeing vacant shop fronts, for example, uh, vacant shops in our high streets um, throughout the place. And the opportunity for a creative rethinking of how we utilise those vacant spaces, um, we can potentially take inspiration from a city like Christchurch. Just tell us about the uh, Christchurch Danso mat. The Danso mat, yeah, that was that was one I described. It was a, a repurposed washing machine. Um, mechanism you know uh, from a laundromat um, and people put their coin in and it activated speakers and music and um and a it was a uh, a dance floor effectively you know on a gravel car park empty space and people would um come along and dance and at any time of day or night you'd find you'd find people dancing in the middle of a vacant lot on that on a dance floor and um this year you know i mean it's always possible to dance but but the fact that this this installation was put in place. It actually um, catalyzed that sort of behaviour, and it was a, it was a really interesting um, experiment. And it just really, and it was also a way, strangely, of Christchurch Christchurch residents um, processing the trauma of the crisis too. They were able to come out and invest in doing some creative creative activations in their in their in their precinct. So, um, I think there's there's definitely something in that for us. Yes, it's been a big theme of uh, Richard Florida's work, hasn't it? That idea of a creative economy helping to spur innovation and, and creating a kind of culture of innovation. And I think it's hard for cities. If you look at uh, places like uh, Sydney and Auckland and Melbourne, increasingly uh, arty types are just being priced out of the central city. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think at this particular moment, um, when you've got office workers who are working from home, uh, when there's a great uncertainty as to if and when and to what extent office workers will return to the central business districts. There's a real uh, rethinking going on around the value proposition of the central business district. What is the role of a central business district in a post-COVID world when people are working from home? And and the opportunity to rethink that, to leverage uh, market adjustments to lease, lease, lease prices, et cetera, to leverage those vacant spaces, to think about a creative resurgence for our inner cities uh, to think to reposition cities as a place, not just where you come and work in a cubicle on a computer uh, and then go home at the end of the day, like um, John Brack's, you know, Collins Street at 5 PM, that famous painting. It's a, it's more, more of a place you come and network or go out for a coffee or share a lunch with a mate and then go out for a drink or go to a workshop or 
you know, meet with your team. It's it's a, it's a very much an experiential sort of space. I think is where we're increasingly heading, and the arts and the creative sector are at the heart of that because it's it's a it's being a central business district is somewhere where you come and experience and enjoy and not just a place to to go and work. Yeah, I was really struck visiting Berlin a decade after the fall of the Berlin Wall, the mm. way in which uh, West Berliners had flocked through to East Berlin, which had a, a much, uh, where they, they basically hadn't knocked down the beautiful old buildings. Uh, so they'd moved into these apartment blocks uh, and the east, the old east had become the cool part of town yeah. and there were all kinds of uh, underground dance parties taking place. There was a, a, an incredible thrive, a thriving youth culture in, the, in that, at that period, uh, almost as though it, it had been bottled up for a generation yeah. and, uh, and was now exploding. So, yeah, I mean, do you think we'll, we'll see some of that uh, as, uh, as we move to a, a fully vaccinated, uh, open economy and society uh, next year? Well, I hope so. I mean, I think we've seen that type of energy uh, unleashed, um, you know, sort of post-crisis or a post-crisis post economy all over the place. We've seen it in Detroit with the, the, the you know, with, uh, with the economic decline in, of Detroit after automotive manufacturing decline. We've seen the same sort of creative energy come through there as was, you saw in Berlin. Um, that creative, the creative flourishing that occurs after a crisis is is actually a theme that popped up quite a few times in the book. In terms of people, when they've been through a big traumatic experience, they've um, and I think we like we have after we've been um, certainly in Melbourne and Sydney where we've been locked up uh, in lockdown for months and months and months on end, um, deprived of social contact, um, and and you know what what you see. After, after other crises is that people want to go out and connect with with other humans. They want to go out and have fun again. And I think I'm hoping that we'll witness that um, when when it's safe to do so. Yeah, I mean, Nick Terrell and I explored this theme and reconnected. And one of the things that struck us was that the pandemic was create in the short term creating some new ways of connecting. Uh, the the uh, Kindness Pandemic Facebook page that uh, Catherine Barrett set up uh, or the mutual aid groups that were springing up, but it also did seem to be doing damage to mass membership organisations. Mm -hmm. People deciding it was easier to Zoom church than turn up to service. People deciding that they didn't need to uh, attend their local uh, political party branch meetings. Um, so yeah, I worry that we'll have um, more spontaneous social capital after the crisis, uh, after the, the, the COVID crisis, uh, but perhaps less organised social capital. Uh, yeah, it's quite possible, Andrew. I mean, I think in a lot of ways, I think we can um, we can start to peg out some of the the key sort of parameters. But I think we're all it's a little bit speculative in terms of actually how it will actually manifest, and and a lot of those questions are still yet to be resolved. The question of the office after 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 COVID, the question of as you say, membership organisations and and how we how we relate to others. I think they're all. I think we're just going to have to wait and see with some of those questions. Hmm. Yeah. So, what do you think the the world of work looks like? Uh, in the US, uh, Nick Bloom's work uh, suggests that maybe uh, a fifth of work will be done from home, up from about a twentieth before the crisis. Hmm. Uh, what does that then mean for how teams operate, and and how do we how how, how do we think about recovery? Uh, in the context of, of making work work better. Yeah, 
I think there's some interesting dynamics going on here. Um, clearly, the thing that's driven superstar cities around the world, including Melbourne and Sydney, has been the agglomeration effect, where knowledge-intensive workers want to cluster together in densely, densely packed um, inner, inner cities where they can bump into each other and literally in in the corridor or in the kitchen or in the or in the street over a coffee and and that knowledge transfer that knowledge sharing that knowledge development is has been a function of the city in a lot of ways and um i'm not sure that phenomenon has actually been radically altered by covid um i think we'll still see that to a large extent but there is a lot of work that does not need to be done uh in the city it's that solo work it's the um the people who are largely doing transactional work or the people who are doing head down, bum up, write a report, sort of you don't need to be in the office today sort of work. The figure you hear about around the place is three days in the office, two days at home. And I don't know, that that remains to be seen. I've seen others forecasting that there'll be more, more people in the office than that. Either way, what I'm hearing from landlords and, and the major employers is that there'll be a reconfiguration of the office more front of house and less back of house, more people working, more, more um, event space, more collaboration space, more client engagement space and less, less desk space and less cubicle space and less people doing the, the sort of standard work. Um, and that does imply something for the role of the, the city. I mean, that actually even implies a greater role for agglomeration and, and knowledge sharing and knowledge intensivity of, of the city. So the value of the city, cities I think will ultimately prevail and we may see some shift in the dynamic between the central city and the suburbs but uh, the cities themselves as an economic unit have been the driver of economic growth for centuries uh, and I think will continue to be so. Yeah I'm particularly pleased about the uh, death of the open plan office which I've long regarded as being a uh, an institution put in place for corporate virtue signalling rather than because it boosts productivity. Uh, all the research that I've seen suggests that open plan is uh, is a distraction, lowers people's productivity. People put on noise cancelling headphones so you actually get less collaboration than you get in offices. Mm. Uh, and uh, and just uh, it's that classic problem that we're not very good at multitasking and uh, open plan offices force us to multitask. But I do worry about some of the uh, trends uh, that uh, de-urbanisation and how that affects a lot of the lower skill jobs, uh, everything yeah. from building managers to security guards to baristas to taxi drivers. Um, there's a lot of work involved in uh, supporting a city ecosystem. And if you take away two-fifths of that work, then that's a, that's a pretty big hit to those people. I think that's right. I think I've also seen some data talking about a hollowing out of the middle as well, um, where, where you've got highly paid knowledge workers and then you've also got a, a whole bunch of people of low paid people servicing those knowledge workers in terms of um, uber drivers or you know amazon delivery drivers or all those sorts of things um enhanced but the but the people in the middle with good with good quality um good quality jobs that seems to you know there's a, there's the risk of the risk that this phenomenon will lead to a greater, I guess, polarization of jobs between between those at the top and those at the bottom. Um, certainly in the central city, though, I think the phenomenon you're talking to is right because w there's plenty of plenty of employment in the city that relies on office workers being there, whether that be the person who makes the sandwich makes the sandwiches or um, 
you know, or the physio or the dentist who, you know, who, who works on office workers during the day. I mean, the fewer, fewer, fewer people there are in the city, frankly, the fewer service jobs there, there will be um, to support those. So one of the uh, kinds of crises you talk, talk about, Andrew, is uh, wars. Uh, and you, sp you have a number of fascinating studies about the impact of wars on economies. Uh, one is the uh, Ted McGuell study out of uh, Vietnam, which finds that parts of Vietnam that were more heavily bombed didn't in fact have less economic activity a generation later. Uh, and the other is uh, a discussion of Germany, where you point out that sometimes uh, the destruction of a factory simply meant that uh, German uh, entrepreneurs invested in the next stage of, uh, of technology, uh, a process you talk about as leapfrogging. Mm. Um, do you think we're going to see some of that technological leapfrogging uh, in, uh, in the post-COVID environment, um, particularly as relates to uh, uh, the, the sorts of technology for telepresence and working together? Yeah, we might potentially. I, I, just backtracking one step there, I, I think it's important to realize i think some of those studies really go on to show that you can experience an absolutely devastating crisis you know like vietnam during during the vietnamese war or the Germ or germany during the during uh, world war ii um and yet a generation later those countries can be booming they can be leading the world you know and um and so crisis 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 can actually yield incredible incredible success in a relatively quick time. And I think it's important to actually, actually reconceptualize that recovery period as, a, as an enormous opportunity. And, and I think the, the things that you refer to, I think those are technological leapfrogging or, or other means of not just catch up, but, but, but ex going, going to the next stage. I mean, they, that's where the opportunity lies. I'm not sure exactly what that looks like in the post-COVID context for a, for a nation like Australia. We've certainly seen technology adoption accelerate. Uh, I would argue that there's a role for government in uh, doubling down on that and investing further. Technology plays a really critical role in recovery in almost every circumstance. And whether that be technology in the sense of helping businesses just get up to speed with the latest technology, whether it could be everything from a retailer or a hospitality vendor moving to the latest point of point of sale system, or, or, or it could be something much more sophisticated in terms of um, the global globally leading clusters of activity, developing new technology that leads the world. In any event, technology should be at the, at the forefront. And we've seen around the world, nations like South Korea or Germany, um, they're leveraging their st economic stimulus packages to um, to invest in technology, or even a nation like France, or they're they're, they're using that those massive stimulus packages, similar to what Australia has, to say at the end of it, we want to have world class industry sectors. Germany says we want to build a green hydrogen sector. Um, yeah, France is saying we want to enhance digitalization throughout the entire nation, and I, I worry that Australia is not leveraging its um its stimulus package to actually leave that legacy of technological improvement so one of the uh, ways of thinking about inequality is that it's a race between education and technology and in periods where education advances fast you get more egalitarianism in periods where technology accelerates more rapidly than education you get a widening of the gap uh, is there a risk, do you think, of uh, what David Order and Elizabeth Reynolds call automation forcing, that during the pandemic, 
uh, we're not we're getting uh, a stagnation in education in partly part because of lockdowns and it's harder for people to learn uh, and that if te technology advances rapidly during that period uh, you might see a whole lot more inequality coming out of the crisis i think it's a massive risk andrew i think the um education um we've seen an enormous amount I don't, i'm not sure the data's come through from the australian context yet but we've seen an enormous amount of lost learning um happen during the pandemic with uh you know with um students not in the classroom um I've got young children. I've got a six-year-old who spent more than 10% of her life in lockdown uh, and she should be in classroom at school learning. Um, uh, and, uh, and the evidence from the OECD and elsewhere is that those that cohort of students in, in and of themselves who've lost learning, um, they will be, they will go on for the rest, their rest of their lives um, economically disadvantaged as a result of that lost learning. Um, that's, that's baked in. Um, and there's plenty of other cohorts, you know, studies that demonstrate that where you lose learning like that over a, over a year or so, that then um, 50 years later, you can actually see the, the impact on earnings and, and, mm. and things like that that flow through from that lost learning. You've also then got disengagement from education. There's studies showing, I'm not sure I've seen any Australian studies, but there's some studies showing that of a proportion of teenagers um, who went into lockdown, like six weeks after the lockdown, the schools had not heard from some massive proportion of those um, of those teenagers. They just disappeared and, and from disengaged in schooling entirely. Um, so I think you're right. I mean, at the same time, we've got technology just going off the charts. We've got education going backwards. And so we're, the challenge, challenge is twofold for education, I think. One is to try and catch up as best we can um, the, the lost learning that we've experienced during the pandemic, but then it's to go beyond and say, we're going to actually improve our educational capabilities as a nation. And as an economic development strategy, there's probably no better economic development strategy than education. You just look at a nation like Singapore, you know, where they've built their entire economic future on investment in the world's best educated and, and uh, you know, citizenry. I mean, I think it's a no brainer for a country like Australia. Yes, and ideally we'd have a little bit more critical thinking uh, compatible with a sort of diverse plural democracy than, uh, than Singapore has. Indeed, uh, indeed. But uh, one of the other things you, uh, you talk about, which I think is, is you know, one of the very few areas in the, uh, in the book that, uh, that caused me to raise an eyebrow, uh, you talk about the importance of emphasising export-oriented businesses. Why should we think of a business that sells stuff overseas as being in any way superior to a business that uh, services a, a domestic market. Yeah, I'm interested firstly to hear why you raised your eyebrows but then, but then let's talk about it. But I think, I mean, export industries are twofold. Obviously, they're, um, the, act, the act of competing with the world forces competition on those businesses. It forces the industries to become much, um, much sharper, you know, in the sense that you've, in, you know, if you've got to compete with the best in the world, you're, you've got to um, develop the knowledge, develop the technology, develop the ideas, develop, develop the, the, the efficiency levels to, so that you can compete with the world's best. And secondly, um, uh, there's a scale question as well. Um, some, in, some industries, depend, different industries have, um, have an optimum scale to produce that. So, if, you know, so that was the South Korean strategy, for example, that I refer to in the book, whereby South Korea basically adopted export export 
industry and export orientation as a strategy because only then could it produce steel or ships or others at a sufficient scale that enabled it to outcompete um, other nations but, you know, and achieve a lower cost because it had achieved a, a sufficient scale. So um, think the, the thing about Australian industry is a lot of it's a lot of it is uh, it's characterized by um, by monopoly or, or oligopoly and there's not a, not a sufficient amount of competition so having an export orientation does does lead to um, an intense focus on competition tell me about why you raised your eyebrows well I, I like the idea of uh, getting more competition and, and that's actually one of the things that I think is, is one of the strongest cases for uh, allowing more imports, which is that importers uh, provide more competition for a domestic market. And, and one of the things you see about the Australian economy of the, the 60s and 70s is it's uh, not particularly dynamic. Uh, there's not a lot of research and development because local firms aren't challenged. But then I suppose I'm, I'm thinking about uh, industries that can the by necessity export and those that by necessity can't export mm. and i'm not sure why public policy should for example favor a company that is uh, uh digging gold out of the ground which is no. you know inherently an exporter uh over a company which is uh producing uh terrific culinary culinary products you know great a great yeah. uh, innovating restaurant and you know one of the big areas of innovation when I look around the Australian economy, is uh, is is uh, uh, restaurant innovation. I think restaurants are, are wonderfully innovative. Uh, the whole uh, explosion of food trucks, uh, what we do, what we do with cuisine, how we present it, how we change the experience. I think that's really impressive. But yeah. by necessity, they're not doing any exporting, so yeah. they'd be left out of an export-oriented strategy. I, I don't disagree with the focus on mining, for example. I mean, I but I do think Australia needs to. Um, think about those sectors in which it can be a genuine genuine global leader and I, I worry that in a country like Australia we're not asking that question what are we going to be famous for at the moment we're going to be famous for digging things out of the ground and that's not sufficient to drive an economy of the future and so the question is what do we need to do to support economic industry economy industries in Australia that are actually going to underpin um, a prosperous economic future for Australia. Um, it's not going to be mining in the long run. Uh, and it's also, um, it's got, it, we've got to be focused on those, particularly in our big cities, those knowledge intensive areas that I talked about earlier. We've got to be, we've got to be able to carve out technology rich sectors in which we compete with the world's best. I think that's a really critical question for us. Yeah, I certainly agree on in in the importance of diversification. Uh, mm. You know, I would, I'd hazard a bit that uh, when I'm put into a coffin or uh, incinerated, um, that Australia will be still uh, overrepresented in mining. Uh, but I guess mining won't be as big a share of the economy at that stage. Mm. But you look at the MIT Atlas of Complexity or Harvard Atlas of Complexity, uh, Australia has, is, a, is a surprisingly undiversified economy. So no, how we manage to, to get a few new sectors uh, growing, I think, would be, yeah. would be useful in terms of job creation as well as uh, prosperity for the economy. Well, certainly in a, in a state like Victoria, though, we've got very little mining. And um, you know, and uh, mining's not not Victoria's future, and we'll need to be focused on those sectors in which we can, um, in which we've got something else to offer. And and we've seen the growth of sectors like international education, 
which is now I think close to our biggest biggest export sector. Pharmaceuticals is is one of our is is one of our other big big exporting sectors. Both knowledge intensive sectors that are underpinned by by our well educated workforce. Yeah, it's sort of ironic, right? Uh, you walk through the middle of uh, Melbourne, and uh, the, all the iconic 19th century buildings are basically the product of a mining boom. But uh, uh, it's not the uh, the city's prosperity any longer. Mm. Um, you talk also about the importance of ambition. Uh, just say a little bit about uh, why it's it, it's vital for leaders to have a, a really ambitious framework, and and some of your favourite examples of recoveries which were driven by a sense of, of national ambition yeah well, i think that and the question of uh of ambition goes back to the heart of that confidence question i we we started the conversation with 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 roosevelt and the new deal um and I, that's one we can go back to the 1920s and talk about that but i think it's we could also talk about how we're experiencing today i mean you, every day we're looking at the the, you know the the case numbers, the vac- vaccination rates. We're getting obsessed with the tactical questions of the day to day, and it's understandable. I can't look away either, but it's very tiring, you know. And the question of um, what is Australia's future going to be in the next year, next two years, next five years, next ten years, next fifty years that that's the question that can enable us to look up from that short term obsession and think about what the, the question of what Australia can become. That's the question that can energize us and um, enable us to think bigger about the possibilities that, that, that our nation holds that can potentially can actually um, unite the nation rather than divide it in a, in a, in a sort of tactical squabble. Um, and I think, um, you know, I think that's really important. That's so we can have an elevated conversation. And Australia doesn't have too many elevated conversations, so we're not particularly good at it. Um, and I think when I look back to a, you know, the New Deal, as I talked about, is that vision of a of a, a an America after, yeah, yeah, after um, a massive crisis that they'd just been through in the and the Great Depression, um, or. Um, I look to uh, South Korea after the Korean War and that vision of uh, a nation that had um, you know, would been absolutely decimated and it was going to rebuild its, an industrial future for itself. Singapore after it recovered from World War II and um, and and its you know its experience of being part of Malaysia. I mean, it it decided it had nothing. It was going to build a, a, an economic vision built on investing in its people. Um, we need a national story. Um, and and at the moment we are sadly lacking. I think Andrew, you might disagree, but it's um. But I think I think that that's a national story. Is something that we can all participate in. We can all contribute to, and it's something that we can all. Um, uh, it's almost part of. It's it's a very democratic exercise. I think. Yeah. No. Look, I, I on everything from China to climate to COVID, I feel as though the national vision is is too small and too defensive. Uh, too much is driven by combination of fear and greed, too little by a sense of purpose and altruism, uh, a notion that, uh, that this is uh, a moment in which Australia could step up, not only to be a better version of ourselves, but also to uh, provide some of that global leadership. Talk a bit about uh, the role of, uh, of, of uh, green recovery too, because of course, on your uh, uh, the the cover cover of your terrific book has this uh, this green shoot here, 
um, yeah. oh, which is now helpfully being blurred out because of my background. Um, but I thought too about the uh, the green uh, pro-climate approach too. Mm. Yeah, well, I think when you th when we think about recovery, what comes next? We're not just going to be recovering from COVID. Um, we're going to be dealing with all sorts of other things at the same time. Uh, the decade ahead is going to be the post-COVID decade, but it's also also the critical decade in which we need to get on top of climate change. Those two things coincide. Um, they happen, you know, and so they happen at exactly the same time. Uh, you've, you've seen, um, it's abundantly clear, we either, we, we either tackle climate change in the next decade or, or we're really in a very, very difficult and dangerous position. We also have got some other other um, intersecting challenges. We've had that longstanding inequality challenge that you've you've alluded to a couple of times in this conversation. That that exists at the same time, and then we've got one of the consequences of climate change, which is additional crises that we're highly likely to face. You'll recall that when we entered COVID back in March 2020, we were just still dealing with mopping up from the enormous East Coast bushfires that Australia just experienced. And so over the next year or two, as we're dealing with the fallout from COVID, it's highly, highly likely that we'll um, be interrupted in some shape or form by a new natural disaster. Um, when New York City was recovering from the global financial crisis, it was hit by Hurricane Sandy, you know, um, you know, it's, a, it's, it's crises layer upon crises. And I think that we need to be, so that, so it does, does lead us in the direction of actually thinking through how should we shape our post-COVID recovery? It's not just about COVID, it's about all the other things as well. And if you think about building an economic future after COVID, climate, climate and decarbonisation represents not just something that we need to tackle because we need to get on top of the climate crisis, but it also represents a mass massive economic opportunity for Australia. And we need to be thinking through how we um, how we leverage that opportunity. We've got enormous renewable energy resources. Um, we could be um, a renewable energy superpower, as Ross Garno has pointed out. Um, and the, the COVID recovery could be a catalyst for that. Um, we need to be thinking about how we deal with uh, how we deal with climate related crises we're going to have to get really really good at crisis management in australia it's going to um unfortunately that's a skill set we're going to need to really really invest in um other countries around the world are doing this as i alluded to earlier they're really deliberately um with with purpose and bucket loads of money investing in underpinning the sorts of things that they want to want to do to create that nation of the future. Germany is um, investing in creating electric vehicle charging stations in every service station in the country. Uh, it's doing massive investments in, in public transport, so electrifying its transport system effectively, creating green hydrogen, hydrogen um, industry that will enable it to export its renewable energy to the world and build an build a industry, industry of the future. That might not be... It, Australia's got great opportunity in exactly the same spaces, but it might not be exactly the same um, thing that Australia pursues. The question is, let's think about those intersections, the COVID crisis, COVID recovery, climate change, inequality, democracy, all the thing, all those other things, we can, we can ideally give it, a, give it a decent crack at tackling at the same time. So James is going to uh, dive in and ask some audience questions soon. So if people have questions, do, uh, do put them in the chat there. Uh, but let me throw one final question to you, uh, Andrew, before we uh, open up to those audience questions. 
Um, I'm a big fan of randomised policy trials, uh, the idea that we should be doing more policy evaluation, a little bit more modesty and uh, trying some things, rigorously evaluating them, keeping the ones that work, throwing away the ones that don't. You know, much as we tested a range of new COVID vaccines uh, uh, with uh, a portfolio rather, rather than just throwing everything at one vaccine. Uh, do you see uh, other opportunities for that kind of uh, policy experimentation? I hope so, Andrew. I mean, I've, I've Random Misters is, is one of my is a book that I've read and I'm very very familiar with, and um, and I think the the randomised control trials um, sort of movement within public policy is really important. I think, and if you look, and again going back to where we started with um, the New Deal and an experimental and iterative process, what would an experimental and iterative process look like? You know, in the 21st century, it would look like randomised control trials. It would look like a whole bunch of randomised control trials properly evaluated and then invest in the successful ones and 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 um and stop stop doing the ones that don't work i mean it's it's um i think it's a skill set that public servants in particular are going to have to get better at doing um evaluation more more broadly um but rcts in particular so it's it's an interesting space yeah and uh, nice to have uh, organizations like the behavioral insights team team and uh, beta units uh, starting to uh, to embed that culture within governments and uh, in central agencies. Yeah. Uh, James, did you want to uh, ask some of the audience questions now? Yes, of course. So we have a question here from Toby, uh, who's asked, how important was Glass-Steagall in underpinning the New Deal? And do you think the New Deal may well have failed without it? Glass-Steagall, again, remind me, Andrew, was um, that was uh, gold standard, yeah? No. My Separation memory. of uh, invest, investment banks. Oh, and that's money, right. Money banks. The banking reform. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know that I know the answer to that. So you, what, do you know the answer to that, Andrew? Uh, I think it's important in terms of ensuring you've got a, a healthy flow of credit to the economy. So if you've got your uh, uh, banks effectively operating as casinos rather than doing the simple work of match, matching up uh, available financial flows with uh, with good deals, then that can that can be a real problem for the economy. Um, so one of the things that I think has been uh, uh, noticeable post global financial crisis is uh, banks moving to much simpler operations. Uh, as it happens, I'm on the deputy chair of the House Economics Committee. We're uh, quizzing uh, the uh, the big four banks this week and next. Uh, and I'm really struck by the way in which they're, they're largely moving out of their wealth management operations, becoming more streamlined and simpler banks. Uh, you've seen the pullout of Citibank from Australia recently, which is part of cities slimming down to be a, a, a much more straightforward operation. And uh, so I do think that uh, simpler banks are probably the right thing for the economy. And, uh, and that's, that's true now as it was in, uh, in decades, decades past. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, we've got a question here from Annie, who's spoken about how the pandemic has sharpened the social divisions uh, and exacerbated disadvantage in Australia. Um, and because we have a, a conservative federal government um, who govern for the big end of town, she's asked, what do you think are the possibilities for some uh, actual major social reform to address those divisions other than an election? Yeah. Um... Yeah, it's not a, not an obvious one. Addressing um, 
I mean, I mean, I'll throw to Andrew in a minute as well. He'll have some ideas on this. But I think the the question of disadvantage and inequality is both got you know some obvious tactical answers, but it's got some also some deep seated structural questions as well that we need to we'll need to address. And I think the the pandemic will exacerbate. Ultimately, we've seen through this pandemic, we've seen um, the tax. Um, you know that we've seen the tax system become more regressive, um, which will exacerbate inequality further. Um, we, we really do need to be moving towards progressive, more progressive taxation system and redistribution within a welfare system. Within a welfare system, and um, I'm a little bit concerned that we have moved in the opposite direction from that. Um, yeah, Andrew, do you want to have, have a go at this? Yeah, and no, I think. Uh... I think anyway is a really important question there. I suppose a, a few of the things that I have in mind is uh, the way in which the pandemic has brought out the uh, inequalities in work. Uh, so the, the workers that we called essential workers were also some of those who are most exposed to COVID uh, and uh, the protections available to them were in some cases deeply inadequate uh, for fast food workers having to choose between uh, infecting customers and pulling a paycheck because they didn't have sick leave, uh, I think is a, is a gap we're going to have to address in the future. Uh, you just can't put people in those, uh, those circumstances. Uh, I think globally, uh, I hope that this, uh, the, the uh, huge global inequities in COVID exposure will uh, remind people of the importance of uh, foreign aid uh, and the fact that a country like Australia shouldn't be cutting its foreign aid to the lowest level in a generation, uh, but should be doing much more to, uh, to, to help countries, you know, particularly in the Pacific, but, but around the world. Mm. Uh, and then I guess partly from the, the pandemic, but also parallel to it, uh, the whole Me Too movement, uh, Brittany Higgins' incredibly powerful speech outside parliament, um, the, uh, the government finally being dragged to implement the recommendations of Kate Jenkins' respected work report uh, does suggest that, uh, that we're going to see stronger focus on sexual harassment, uh, which, is, which is important for 100% of the economy, not for 51% of the economy, uh, because workplaces in which women are sexually harassed uh, are less productive and less efficient, uh, as well as being in inequitable and, and deeply horrible to the people who have to put up with that behaviour. I think one of the other things that the pandemic's shown us is is really shone a line, light on the social determinants of health. You know, too often we've thought of health health outcomes as being a function of the healthcare system. If you provide universal healthcare, then you'll get good health outcomes. But what the pandemic has shone a line on is that. Um, other determinants that are rooted in inequality um, have actually led to health outcomes and uh, overcrowded housing, uh, comorbidities that come that, that have been associated with the pandemic. Things like um, obesity or uh, or smoking or alcohol alcoholism or um, poor air quality. Um, all of those things that are actually contributing to poor health outcomes um, have actually coincided. With, uh, with the pandemic and have actually exacerbated um, mortality around the world. And I think one of the, it was interesting, one of the things that came out of the Spanish flu, it took, it took a couple of, took a decade or two, but um, the, U, the UK emerged from the Spanish flu and invested in universal healthcare as a, as a way, as a, partly as a response to the Spanish flu. Um, but what 
what they didn't do was tackle the social determinants of health that were revealed by the Spanish flu. And as a result, health healthcare outcomes didn't improve. And so universal services are absolutely required, but only get you part of the way there. And I think um, the pandemic should remind us of that and, and really it does leave that challenge ahead of us, I think. We've got a question here from uh, Simon who's spoken about uh, how you, Andrew, we uh, advocate for a dedicated, uh, presumably national government uh, agency that will ensure a focused and coordinated recovery process. Uh, why do you think the Commonwealth will be better at driving recovery than state governments? Oh, I haven't necessarily advocated a national a national um, re recovery agency. I mean, the Commonwealth government has implement has established a national recovery and uh, re recovery agency of some sort in response to flood and um, flood and bushfires, etc. I can't remember the exact name. Um, I think the principle, though, um, is that I'd like to highlight rather than any specific agency. Um, the, the principle of multiple tiers of government all working together uh, where it's required. Uh, and in the case of Australia, I suspect it's going to be in our big cities that are impacted most. The central, uh, Melbourne and Sydney in particular will be, um, have, have suffered by the time the dust settles from this, we'll have suffered extraordinarily. The central, the central cities in both of those cities will be um, really struggling. That'll require a big effort from local government and local communities in those places. But the local governments don't have the financial capacity or the resources that state governments do, and and um, and state governments in turn don't have the massive fiscal resources that the federal government does. And so, it'll all work better. Um, I think it's important that all three tiers of government are pointing their noses in the same direction, are actually talking to each other in a civil fashion and actually working towards something approximating the same plan. And whether that's an agency, whether that's an MOU, whether that's just a regular way of coming together to work, it doesn't really matter. The principle is working together at different tiers of government, involving the community in decision-making, um, making sure that everyone's working together on that recovery. Andrew, can I ask a follow-up question to that? Uh, since you're, you've been working at the City of Melbourne, uh, I was, I've been struck that uh, although we have seen some hits to the urban economy, there hasn't been the, the mass flight from central cities than I might have expected. Uh, so particularly in the wake of Victoria having the, the longest lockdown period in, uh, in Australia uh, and the, the pandemic clearly being more of an issue where people are tightly packed. You know, the old uh, line that people would uh, refer to apartment buildings as like uh, fixed cruise liners. Uh, we haven't seen that sort of exodus from, from high density central city living that uh, we might've predicted a year ago. Why is that? Yeah. Um, I'm I, I was, there has been a, a minor, a minor sort of out-migration from the cities to regional areas. Less, that's a net out-migration and that's less about people moving from the cities to regional areas and more about fewer regional people moving to the city. Um, so the net, net effect is, is, but altogether all it's pretty small. It's, it's, it's not really material. And it's consistent with what we've seen in the past. In the, in the, in the decade after the Spanish flu in the, in the US, urban, you know, the, the ratio of people living in urban areas increased from 51 to 56%. It actually led to greater urbanization. And when you look at the actual health data, the um, it seems like cities are a dangerous place to be in a pandemic, but actually um, people in rural areas die from the pandemic far more at a greater rate than the, um, 
than people living in cities. The data coming out of the US at the moment is that Mississippi um, has just outstripped New York for um, deaths per capita, for example, and, and pre predominantly in rural areas. And that, some of that's to do with a lot of disadvantage, um, access to healthcare, et cetera, but um, comorbidities and all those sort of things that you find in rural areas, age, um, but cities aren't necessarily the most dangerous place to be. Um, and I think it goes back to that just conversation we were having about work, Andrew. If people are still working in the office three days a week, you know, you, um, you can't afford to move too far away from city, too, too far away from the central city. You can probably move a little bit further out to the suburbs because you're commuting a bit only a, a sm smaller number of days a week, but you still need to make a connection with, with the office, even if you're not in the office every day. Um, so I don't think we'll see any um, demographic decline in, in cities. We might see, as I said, some sort of balancing shift between the central city and the suburbs, but cities overall will keep keep booming, I think. Unfortunately, I think that's James, all did you want to throw a final question at us? Uh, well, actually, I think that's all the time we have, unfortunately. Uh, but if anybody does have any more questions, uh, I would direct you to the said books um, by Andrew Weir and Andrew Lee. I've just dropped a link to both of them in the uh, in the chat box. And of course, they're available in the email that I sent you uh, with the link to this Zoom meeting. Uh, so you'll definitely be able to get um, more answers from there. Uh, look, I just want to say a really, really huge thank you to you both. Um, this has been such a, a, a really, really fascinating conversation. Um, I've enjoyed having both of your perspectives so much. Um, I'm really looking forward to seeing you both again when we can. Uh, but while we can't, I am just going to ask everybody to unmute themselves and give you a big round of applause for an excellent conversation. Um, so if everyone could just join me in applauding Andrew Weir and Andrew Lee. Yeah. Thank you, James. And uh, I've always wanted to use this line. It's good night from me and good night from him. Okay. <laughs> See you, everyone.